0: You're listening to From the Front Lines, a special podcast from WUFT during the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast provides weekly updates on Florida's coronavirus response with a particular focus on North Central Florida. Each week, From the Front Lines will feature community leaders and frontline workers working to reopen their communities safely during these challenging times. Hello, I'm your host Ryan Vasquez and this is From the Front Lines. With the 4th of July holiday this weekend, the expectations for many Floridians under normal circumstances would be fireworks displays, barbecues, and trips to the beach. But amidst the pandemic, those fireworks displays have been canceled and some counties have decided to close their beaches out of precaution. Governor Ron DeSantis, speaking at a press conference in Daytona Beach earlier this week, says he's not as concerned. You know,
1: doing things outdoors in Florida uh, is less risky than doing things where you're packed indoors. So I think having the parks and having beaches. Obviously, you know, it needs to be controlled. I think most of the localities like Brevard and here in Volusia have done that. Um, But but by and large, the virus does not like sunshine, heat and humidity.
0: In the last month, most of which has occurred under phase two of the governor's reopening plan, more than 100,000 cases of coronavirus have been added to the state's total, representing more than 60 percent of all cases in Florida. In this episode, we explore if the state is moving backward in its fight against the coronavirus. We'll talk with an epidemiologist who gives us a closer look at what the data is telling us. We'll also hear from businesses who have ridden the roller coaster of opening and closing during this pandemic. Plus, we'll check in with counties and cities on their decisions to close their beaches or not or mandate facial coverings. Numbers. We've been hearing a lot of numbers throughout this pandemic the number of cases, the number of deaths the number of hospitalizations, and it goes on and on. And those numbers come from mounds of data compiled by health officials and hospitals. State policymakers tout they are making data-driven decisions, but what happens if the data itself is faulty? Gabriella Paul speaks with an epidemiologist to find out.
2: Over the past two weeks, new cases in Florida have climbed to eclipse all-time records, making state and national headlines.
3: California, Texas, and Florida are in crisis. More than 6,500
2: new cases of COVID-19 in the past 24 Governor hours.
0: Governor DeSantis is now recognizing that community spread is a real problem here in Florida.
2: I spoke with infectious disease epidemiologist Dr. Mary Jo Trepka at Florida International University to ask her exactly what we should make of all this. In the past, Trepka has worked with the Academic Intelligence Service of the CDC. And since March, she's worked alongside a team of researchers to track the virus, particularly in South Florida.
3: It's frustrating because there's so much information and it's coming out not just once a day, it's coming out throughout the day, right? It's just an awful lot of information. The
2: Florida Department of Health has attempted to track the novel coronavirus from the first known positive case on March 1st to the present day in a COVID tracking dashboard that can be found on its website. In many ways though, Trupka said the raw data reported here are both too much and not enough. Here's how she broke down two of the main metrics the FDOH tracks, new case
3: counts and positivity rate. So the number of positive COVID-19 tests tells us how many people are being diagnosed with COVID-19, um, which is very important to know, um, but it's also a function of testing. So back in April, uh, it's not, we didn't see quite as many cases as we do right now, but the people who were tested in, in April were primarily people in the hospital and people were very sick. So it's not, if you just look at the number of positive COVID-19 tests, what you see between April and June, it's not completely comparable because of the different testing patterns, because testing is more widely available right now. But if we go down to the proportion of tests that are positive, we get over that problem because we're um, looking at the number of positive divided by the number of people tested. When we do that, um, we see that uh, we are not quite where we were in the beginning of April in terms of the proportion of positives, but we're getting very close to being where we were. That's not the conclusion
2: Governor Ron DeSantis came to in his coronavirus briefing last Friday on June 26th, the same day he quietly ordered the Department of Business and Professional Regulation to ban bars from serving alcoholic beverages on site.
1: What we're seeing uh, you know, today, obviously a lot of news saying a huge number of quote cases. Um, really nothing has changed in the past week in terms of we had a big test dump. We've been testing 10 to 15 percent of been tested positive. Uh, for really the last week that's a huge change from where we were um, at the beginning of June when we were basically three or four percent in terms of the positivity statewide.
2: So what should Floridians make of all the mixed messaging? Dr. Trupka brought me through a few of the golden rules when extrapolating any data set and how the health department's coronavirus tracking dashboard breaks them all out of mere necessity. The first being the data is messy.
3: The public health system routinely uh, collects data on on cases of different infectious diseases and reports them and monitors them, right? And generally reports them out to the public once a year. So that would be several uh, weeks after the close of a calendar year. And the reason for that is they have to clean it up. Um, But in this situation, uh, there's not time for that. And so data, the health department is literally spitting out data in reports the day it receives the data. And so the data is not as clean as we would normally like to see uh, with surveillance data, but there is a necessity to that because policymakers have to make a decision on a daily basis.
2: The second golden rule Dr. Trupka said the dashboard fails to meet is that of being a complete data set.
3: It would be wonderful if there was more information about the people testing positive in the sense of, you know, the occupations that they have, potential sources of exposure. um, Because it's hard, I think, for policymakers to make decisions only based on age uh, and dates. um, Because even though we know that in Florida, in general, the the median age is quite low, that would suggest to me that then the exposures are related to maybe people socializing. but but on the other hand, we don't know because that information is not reported out. <laughs> Lastly, Dr.
2: Trupka reiterated the importance of consistent data definitions, or definitions of the components being measured, something the dashboard has failed to do at times as well. In fact, last Monday on June 22nd, the dashboard attracted criticism after reporting guidelines were modified statewide for the definition of ICU bed availability. Some even pointed fingers at Governor Ron DeSantis for data manipulation.
3: Uh, it's sort of a cardinal rule in public health surveillance that you try to keep things as consistent as possible and you avoid changing case definitions because when you do that, then there's, then it's almost impossible to, to look at trends. With
2: the cardinal rules all broken when attempting to track coronavirus at the state level, being messy, incomplete, and inconsistent, I asked Dr. Trubka. What is her takeaway looking forward where she's tracked the virus more closely in South Florida?
3: The increase is, been, is a very real increase. And the problem is, is if this gets any worse, because if it does inc- continue to increase at the rate that it's increasing, then our hospitals will start to have problems in terms of being able to care for people.
0: With the number of cases of COVID-19 continuing to rise, that trend has also lowered the average age of infection. Cameron Lund spoke with adults aged 22 to 28 to see how they are coping with being something they never thought they would be during this pandemic, at risk.
4: Alachua County finds itself in a different position compared to the rest of the state. As of June 29th, the average age of infection in the county is 29 years old, far below the state average of 40. Paul Myers, administrator of the Alachua County Department of Health, addressed the occurrence in a county commission meeting just over a week ago.
5: The median age of cases has gone from somewhere in the mid-50s down to the low 40s. And so what's happening in Alachua County is really reflective of what's happening all the way from Escambia down to Monroe County. It's a phenomenon that um, is reflective across the state with the 20 to 30-year-olds really being tested for a variety of reasons and coming back uh, positively.
4: Young adults all across the state find themselves in places where even though they are young, COVID-19 is still a threat. Kishan McCallum is a 23-year-old direct care aide at Northeast Florida State Hospital in McClinney. He has diabetes, which makes him at risk, but he feels that his job takes proper precautions.
6: At my job, everybody comes into the facility and you're immediately wearing a mask and you know we follow the proper precautions and nobody at my job has you know, popped positive for a test so far as far as our residents or staff members.
4: Even though he fears for himself being immunocompromised, he is most concerned about his older parents, who he still lives with.
6: I stay with my parents, and my parents are a lot older, and I worry that I'm going to get it or carry some of the symptoms from it and give it to them and not know it, and then they get sick. And being that they're older, they may not overcome it.
4: But Kashawn isn't the only immunocompromised young adult who is having to cope with the new normal brought on to him by COVID-19. John Propes is 22, and he just recently started working for a tire company as a delivery driver. This is his first job in several months after self-quarantining over his asthma-related health concerns.
6: It's not easy. I mean, we got one stimulus payment, uh, and that really doesn't cover much when it comes to bills nowadays. So, I mean, it was tough. I ended up having to move in with my dad. Um, and then I quarantined you know every day from then on until the middle of May, and at that point i couldn't do it anymore i mean i couldn't i couldn't not work anymore. I had to go back
4: Propes, who lives in Pasco County feels that wearing a mask is a small sacrifice to make for the
6: safety of others. A lot of people aren't happy with it because uh, they think it infringes on some sort of right that they have to not have to protect everyone. Uh, I mean, I don't mind, it's kind of a a little tiny sacrifice to wear a mask somewhere, you know, when we're talking about thousands of people dying and then, you know, the numbers rising every single day.
4: Diana Bermudez is a 28-year-old graphic designer for the University of Florida. She hasn't personally been infected, but she has had a friend around her age whose life is now forever changed by the coronavirus.
7: I think at the beginning of this pandemic that the warning that this was going to affect disproportionately people with the age over 60 kind of gave people my age a false sense of like, oh, this isn't going to affect us. And if it does affect us, it's not going to be that big a deal. And that's clearly not the case. I have a friend who got COVID-19 and she got it. And now she's dealing with like laughing kidney issues because of it. So clearly it is affecting us.
4: Social distancing has been quite easy for her. And she even finds herself socially engaging more than she was before the quarantine.
7: Honestly, I have never been busier, which is shocking. I joined a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group, which is a podcast that does every Mondays. Um, I do a D&D. I'm in a D&D campaign with a bunch of friends at Dungeons & Dragons. Um, And just through, like, that alone, that's, like, two or three times a week, is... I've never been busier.
4: It seems that unlike much of the stereotypes and assumptions about young adults, some are putting their health and the health of others over the temporary pleasures of personal engagement and entertainment. Brief moments that can now be the difference between life and death.
0: As the number of COVID-19 positive cases sets new records day-to-day, the pandemic has hit our reporting team personally. Josh Williams is quarantined in South Florida, staying with immediate family after half a dozen extended family members tested positive following a Father's Day lunch. He explains what it's like when the virus hits home.
8: It was your typical family visit. I drove from Gainesville to Delray Beach near West Palm to visit my sister, Michaela, my mother, Elisa, and my mother's girlfriend, Luann, who is like a second mother to me. My boyfriend stayed home because we were trying to reduce the number of people around Luann who is now battling cancer for a third time. The first day was great and then came day two. My grandfather, Nana, and aunt were all suddenly sick, coughing, fevers, headaches, weakness, the list goes on. It was so abnormal, my aunt never gets headaches and my grandfather can't remember the last time that he had a fever. Something was wrong and then my grandparents got worse. After hours of convincing, they finally called 911. They barely even remember the trip to the hospital because of the delirium. Then came the news, COVID positive, and my grandfather was in the ICU. Less than 24 hours later, my aunt would also test positive. So then the big question, where did this all begin? It was something so simple, a Father's Day lunch at my aunt's house, around a dozen people got together, catching up, sharing stories, and doing their best to social distance. And that includes my mother and sister. But even with precautions, that wasn't enough. You never think it's gonna happen to you. And then it does. It's scary, even my sister admits it.
9: I think I've just been more confused than anything because we don't know if we really have it. And I think the fact that we've had to self-quarantine, it's really just, it into reality that this is affecting us and even if we don't have any symptoms there is a big possibility that we could still have this and not know about it and i think that's the scariest part of it all
8: the story doesn't end there within a few days after the positive test three more people in my family my uncle and both of his parents became symptomatic all with the same signature coughing fevers headaches then there's the worry about my two cousins one of which is just four years old. You know, it's not real until it hits home.
9: I think once it really hits you individually, you'll never really understand what it's like. Um, I never understood all the precautions that you had to take. I wasn't really that careful. And now that it's actually hit us, it's, it's really scary.
8: In the course of a week, I've watched my mother spend countless hours on the phone Speaking to nurses, updating family members. Probably the scariest of all, she's trying to figure out if my grandfather has a living will and a burial plot. My Nana has since gone home and is running a high fever in bed. Meanwhile, my aunt feels guilty having arranged the Father's Day lunch. So now what? What's next? I decided to call up family friends, medical professionals, to talk to them. That includes Dr. Wayden Everett Emery III. I asked him point blank, as a state... What did Florida do wrong to now see this spike again? I'm not sure that we did
10: anything wrong. Originally we quarantined everyone to prevent a run on hospitals and hospital equipment, specifically ventilators. None of us professionals ever believed that it would decrease the total number of COVID-19 patients uh, by quarantine. All we would do is, as everyone has said, flatten the curve out. And if you know anything about mathematics, the area under the curve is essentially going to be the same. It's just spread out over time.
8: But beyond just the here and now, Dr. Emery worries about the long-term implications of COVID, including what it could mean for my family. I'm a
10: neurologist, and I'm concerned about the long-term sequelae of neurologic disease with reference to this
11: pandemic.
10: We have another example, the pandemic of 1918, in which following that pandemic, there was an outbreak of Parkinsonism, which spread worldwide. And I'm concerned that there may be similar sequelae to this virus.
8: For now, I'm stuck in South Florida, quarantining with my immediate family. I was supposed to return to Gainesville days ago, but I'm now nervously awaiting test results to see if I have it. My sister, she's also on edge.
9: Mentally, I think it's put me in a bad place. I think I've gotten a little impatient and just, I've just been really s- stressed out and been ridden with anxiety because all of this has just set my, fa- Set my family back we have someone in the family with cancer too so that's been really scary and we don't want to want it to affect her and because the test results haven't come back yet we, we still don't know
8: and you know every time I get a tickle or clear my throat I wonder is this it
0: the daily reporting of more and more cases of the coronavirus that has caused most major cities and counties in the state to issue mandates to wear facial coverings in public places. These decisions have been met with support from the medical community but mixed reactions by the public ranging from praise to protest. Melissa Feto explores some of those reactions and why face coverings are important in reducing the transmission of the virus.
12: Florida's COVID-19 cases skyrocketed in June, and as we enter July, at least 17 counties and several more cities are issuing requirements regarding face coverings in public places. Dr. Cindy Prinz, an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Florida, says that there's a difference between adopting an order and following an order effectively,
13: But it's a good start. The first step in adopting the mandate is really important. We know that masks are going to be um, effective in in reducing transmission of COVID-19. They need to be worn properly, so they need to be worn both over the nose and mouth. Um, We need people to wear them consistently.
12: But wearing a mask is just part of what she calls a preventative bundle.
13: So the idea is Not to just wear a mask and, you know, go do any activity and go be with anyone for any period of time. The mask is going to help protect you, but you maintain that physical distancing from people. You cut down the amount of time of exposure.
12: Especially, she says, because we now know that many people infected don't show symptoms.
13: And not only that, but those people without symptoms can transmit COVID-19. And so when you take that into account, um, having everyone wear a mask becomes that much more critical.
12: She says that the public guidance on face coverings hasn't always been consistent.
13: But I think, you know, we're at a point where we will be solidly and consistently telling people the best way to protect yourselves and others is to wear a mask.
12: Indeed, having followed such advice, many leaders in larger counties are now requiring face coverings. In Jacksonville, Mayor Lenny Curry signed an executive order earlier this week mandating people wear face coverings indoors in public places when physical distancing isn't possible. This comes ahead of the Republican National Convention in August. Mayor Jerry Demings of Orange County also signed an executive order requiring face coverings in similar circumstances earlier this June. Neither representatives from the city of Jacksonville or Orange County were available for comment. A smaller city, Key West, also voted to mandate wearing a face covering when inside a business. Commissioner Sam Kaufman noted visitors as one reason for the mandate.
5: Unfortunately, we have some tourists We're coming to Key West and disrespecting our community, disrespecting our rules, failing to pay attention to what is really needed to
10: help reduce the spread.
12: If a business is caught twice in noncompliance, Mayor Terry Johnston will have them shut down for 24 hours.
14: Anytime you're up and moving around through a population where you can't social distance, you have to have a mask on. It's really simple.
12: Seminole County has a population of over 400,000 people and over 2,800 documented cases of COVID 19. Emergency Manager Alan Harris signed the executive order, which went into effect July 1st. Like orders in other counties, this one includes several exceptions. For example, children under the age of two, people exercising, and people who are deaf or hard of hearing who rely on lip reading. In terms of enforcement, Harris likens the situation to a mandatory evacuation order during a hurricane.
5: We do not go house to house knocking on doors and telling people you gotta leave the house right now and drag them out. We don't do that. Uh, And we're not gonna do that in this case. We're not gonna tackle someone and throw a face mask on them. We're simply saying, for public safety's sake, that it is best for public safety to wear facial masks and coverings.
12: That's for individuals, but for businesses, however.
5: If a business is just non-compliant, we will absolutely not do this, uh, then we would interact with whatever agency uh, would would normally uh, interact in that case. In
12: advance of the order going into effect, the county provided face coverings for small businesses who needed them.
5: Uh, we want to make this as easy as possible.
12: He says the response by the residents of Seminole County has been polarized.
5: A lady crying on the phone thanking me so uh, because she's been so afraid to leave, and now she thinks that this is going to be a little bit better, that she maybe can get out and... Uh, and go shopping and stuff like that and uh, she's looking forward to that and then there's the people that you know call and i think i've been called every name uh, possible today
12: harris says to those against wearing a face covering that the order is essentially voluntary but that didn't stop around 80 people from attending an anti-mask demonstration in sanford's magnolia square the day after we spoke on the other hand harris says the advice from the county's medical community has been unanimous wear a mask
5: all of them every single one said this is the way we stop the spread every single one none of them have conflicted uh, so i'm going to go with that
0: the fourth of july holiday is a big one for florida but because of the coronavirus pandemic some celebrations could look a little different this year several south florida counties have closed their beaches for the weekend to help stop the spread of the virus anthony montalto tells us more
14: we're usually 100 percent sold out at a very nice average daily rate Now, I don't have one person arriving on Friday until I lower the rate to below what I think is acceptable to even be in business.
15: That's Courtney Dunlop. She's the general manager of the St. Maurice Beach Inn, located right on the Hollywood Beach broadwalk in Broward County. Usually, she's at 100% capacity for the 4th of July holiday, but this year, Hollywood Beach is closed, along with every other beach in Broward, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and Monroe counties.
14: I had expected it to come. I mean, I couldn't even believe that they had reopened for Memorial Day weekend. You know, after being locked up for so long, it's a little bit of a shock to me that they opened the, the beaches the weekend before or of Memorial Day.
15: Broward opened its beaches a little over a month ago, Indeed shortly followed. But as daily numbers of confirmed cases continue to rise in Florida, South Florida counties are determined to stop the spread somehow. Broward held a press conference earlier this week, outlining the closures.
11: We have seen a large increase in the number of positive tests over the past week. It is alarming, and we have to do everything we can to protect ourselves and our community and our economy.
15: That's Broward County Mayor Dale Holness.
11: We want people to come and enjoy these beaches, enjoy your restaurants, stay in our hotels. But at this point in time, because of the increases that we've seen, And the number of positive tests in Broward County, we cannot allow that to happen this 4th of July weekend.
15: Holness explained Miami-Dade County had already announced beach closures as well as Palm Beach County. He says officials worried about what might happen if Broward kept beaches open.
11: We know that if we stay open, we'll have a crowd here. And that would lead to further spread of the COVID-19 disease, which is a serious pandemic upon this world.
15: But while Broward and other South Florida counties are roping off the sand and surf this weekend, Citrus County in Central Florida is keeping its beaches open. County Commission Chair Brian Coleman says the county has been following Governor Ron DeSantis' orders throughout the pandemic.
1: All along we've been following the uh, governor's orders and we have not put on any further restrictions or more or less restrictions and were imposed by the governor's directives and, and orders.
15: He says keeping the county's beaches open is about keeping things consistent for Citrus County residents.
1: Back when it first started, I think St. Pete, Tampa, Clearwater area, each jurisdiction had some different guidelines and it was very confusing. So we pretty much looking at what the governor order says and are following that so there is no confusing with our citizens.
15: But Coleman says even though beaches are staying open, the commission is worried about another spike in cases. He says Citrus has seen more cases over the past few weeks and that the county is doing everything it can to stop the spread.
1: I am constantly in communications with all our constitutional officers and our medical staff in both hospitals and our county health administrator. So we are having these conversations and it is ongoing pretty much a couple of times a week we have these meetings.
15: Back in South Florida, most beach closures start today and some end Monday but Monroe County is keeping its beaches closed until Tuesday. Officials are also asking people wishing to watch fireworks displays to keep their distancing or even stay in their cars. More details on that can be found on each county's website. And as for Dunlop, she says most of her reservations for this weekend have been canceled. Although the Hollywood Beach Broadwalk is staying open along with most of its restaurants and shops.
14: Any advanced reservations that I had on the books for this holiday weekend, Pretty much 95% of those travelers have canceled.
15: But there's a bit of hope. She says some people who canceled their stays this weekend plan to come next weekend instead.
14: This weekend is just about the beach being closed. A lot of people that have reservations for the holiday weekend have switched it to the following um, weekend.
0: And with the surge in cases and stricter regulations from cities and counties, local restaurants and bars are finding it more difficult to operate. Taylor Levesque spoke to local business owners who say they're struggling.
16: Chopsticks Cafe, located on Southwest 13th Street in Gainesville, never closed its doors.
7: We've been open the whole time.
16: But manager T.T. Lee says the restaurant has been operating on a different format.
7: We're still doing takeout only.
16: For a very personal reason.
7: This is a family restaurant, so my mom has been through cancer twice, so we, you know, keep it as safe as possible for our family and, you know, for our customers as well.
16: And Lee says closing is not an option.
7: Some days are better than others, but, you know, we're playing it day by day. We can't close, can't afford to close.
16: But unlike some local restaurants, bars have been forced to take a step back. Last week, the Department of Business and Professional Regulation announced the suspension of consuming alcohol at bars statewide. Ann Wilsey bartends at Havana's Wine and Cigar Bar in Gainesville and says it was a decision she did not expect.
2: I'm expecting to like wake up, get out of bed, start getting ready to go about my day, run some errands, and then get ready to go to work. And I wake up to just the news that like, hey, you don't have a job today.
16: Under the executive order, restaurants may continue to sell alcohol as long as it is less than 50% of their overall revenue and bars can sell alcohol to go in sealed containers. Wilsey says Havana opted out of doing to go drinks and decided to close.
12: Our owner just particularly wasn't interested in, in jumping through the hoops. They felt it would just be easier to just, if we're open, we're open,
13: if we're closed, we're closed.
16: Willsey said she is currently torn between finding another job or waiting it out in hopes the bar will reopen soon. She also adds she doesn't agree that the current closures are the only reason coronavirus cases are rising.
2: There are still places that exist that fall into the restaurant guidelines that even at a 50% occupancy in them, it's still far too many people.
16: Cindy V Goods Cafe owner Cheryl Eddy says this is a time of change for a lot of businesses.
14: I think that everybody's going to have to change their business model and it's unfortunate and it's really hurting a lot of restaurants. I can tell you that
16: Eddie says her cafe had just gotten their license to sell alcohol right before the initial closures in March.
14: We weren't going to be a bar that was open late at night. We were going to be like that little happy hour, pick up your dinner to take home, have a glass of wine or two and uh, um, you know,
16: or some orders and a little bit different, but has yet to utilize the license for business. I didn't want to get
14: into to go orders with alcohol.
16: Eddie says the cafe has been open for to go food orders only and says she is confident her business will make it through the pandemic.
14: I don't foresee us in our particular situation shutting down, but I can see that for other businesses because it's it costs to keep the doors open. Things are just going to have to be different. And we got to figure out a way to deal with it.
16: On the other hand, in Gainesville, businesses like Civilization and Dirty Nellie's Irish pub have closed permanently due to struggles related to COVID-19. Swamp Restaurant recently closed with less business during the pandemic and plans to open a new location in approximately 18 months.
0: From the Front Lines is a production of the Innovation News Center at the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thank you to our producers, Taylor Levesque, Anthony Montalto, Josh Williams, Melissa Fato, Gabriella Paul, and Cameron Lund. Also, thanks to our fellow Florida public media stations for their contributions to this podcast. And a special thank you to Matt Abramson and Craig Lee for their work behind the scenes. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a story to share with From the Front Lines, please contact WUFT on Facebook or Twitter or send an email to news at WUFT.org. That's news at WUFT.org. Join us next Friday for another edition of From the Front Lines. I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez. And of course, thanks for listening.